So Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai ill-treated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now pregnant, and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Beer Lahai Roi. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. This is God's word. Good morning, everyone. My name is Pete. I'm assistant minister here. And uh, I get to talk to you just for a moment about this amazing Bible passage. Let's pray as we begin. Sovereign Lord, we are mindful today on Remembrance Sunday of our freedom and uh, how we sit here this morning as uh, people who have been paid for by those who have gone before us. They bought our freedom and the chance for us to come to church in a peaceful nation and by the Lord Jesus Christ who's paid for us and given us the chance to learn more about you. So help us listen up, I pray. Help us to know how this will change our lives. And we pray it hopefully, knowing that we're loved in the power of the Spirit through the name of Jesus and for your glory. Amen. Our story today in Genesis 16 is about shortcuts and how they can go wrong. The internet 
it turns out, is a rich source of shortcuts that uh, have gone wrong. I've just selected a few highlights for you to get us going. Uh, I think we've got them here on the screen. Um, one man, I imagine, in the supermarket car park thought, oh, I could just pop over that curb and um, take a shortcut. And um, as I look at that picture, I find myself thinking, I could have been that guy. <laughs> you, and, and maybe some of you are the same, a similar sort of driver. My wife can testify, I'm a very good driver, just prone to occasional bad episodes. And um, I can imagine climbing out of the driver's door thinking, oh, that was a shortcut that didn't pay off. Uh, we've got a few more. Here's one. Very blurry CCTV, but can you see the people crossing the train line? And uh, have you ever had the experience of thinking, I'm on this train platform, I just need to get to that train platform over the tracks. Oh, and it would be so much quicker to avoid walking up the stairs and over the bridge. Don't worry, I haven't done this. Uh, if I could just pop across the tracks. Don't, don't do that. Don't do that. Uh, here's another one. A man on a motorbike who evidently thought, yes, I could take a shortcut over this sandy hill. And our final one, I think the most ironic of all. <laughs> on the road to success, there are no shortcuts. And how that company boss must be ruining the day that he chose that slogan, which is now all over the internet. Uh, there we are. Thank you, Dave. We could, we could have them off. Sometimes shortcuts aren't actually better. They're not a shortcut at all. Maybe I should have stuck to the route I was given, I find myself thinking. Today we find Abram and Sarai, his wife, they're, they're waiting in the gap between promise and reality. We've been seeing that's the, sort of the big theme. They are, well, they are at least living in the gap between promise and reality. God's promised Abram enormous things, and yet he's still waiting to realize them fully. And today we see, perhaps most of all, that it's a real waiting game for them. Years are passing as they tick them off one by one on their calendar, and they still haven't seen the children in particular that God promised. They're waiting in the gap between promise and reality. Abram's often a good example to us, and we've seen that in the last couple of weeks, but here the waiting just sort of grinds him down. And there's some domestic strife that really gets to him and to his wife. And God's promised them great things, but wow, the clock ticks on and on. If you might permit me one more reference to Grand Designs, which we've been likening our series to, that, that TV show. Um, it's as if God's promised them this massive architectural project, and God's going to do all the work in his particular way, in his particular time, when he turns up with the diggers and the builders. But today, Sarai just gets a little bit impatient and thinks, well, phew, it's been a while. I'll just lay a few bricks. I'll just do a few things to get us started and help the project along. She takes a shortcut. This is a funny sort of disobedience we're dealing with today. Because can you, can you see, Sarai, she wants the house to be built. She wants God's grand design. And she, she sees the promise, hears the promise, and thinks, that's fantastic. So I'm pushing in the same direction. I'm just going to try and speed things along a little bit. It's not out-and-out -out disobedience. She's not going in the other direction. She's just laying a few bricks, trying to hurry things up a little bit. Because things seem a little bit slow. It's a funny sort of disobedience that way. And today, what I want to show you in the story is that there's three human characters, Sarai, Abram, and Hagar, the slave, and they all try and take a shortcut of some sort. Okay, so three characters. First of all, Sarai takes a shortcut but gets more problems. Secondly, Abram does nothing but gets the blame. And thirdly, Hagar runs away but gets sent back. And it's here on the back of your service sheet if you want to follow along. Three characters. Let's, let's start with Sarai. Sarai takes a shortcut but gets more problems. 
We can roughly work out her age here. She's 75. Her biological clock isn't just ticking, it's stopped. And there's this, evidently this deep pain in her. You can tell that from the way the story starts because she hasn't had the children that she longed for and that the Lord has promised her. And you can imagine her wondering, did the Lord just dangle this in front of me, I don't know, to test me, to make me wait? Has he forgotten? Verse one. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his, to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. And when she knew that she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. And then Sarai ill-treated Hagar, so she fled from her. You see, there's a couple of things in here that we might prick up our ears about because we've been reading through Genesis. Do you notice we're told twice in verses 1 and 3, this was an Egyptian slave doesn't seem like a necessarily important thing. We're told uh, there's, there's something suspicious about this situation. There's a reference to Egypt. We're learning to prick up our ears when this happens. It usually portends bad things. Notice in verse 2, she says, maybe I can build a family through her. There's an echo of the Tower of Babel there, isn't there? Maybe I could build a name for myself, myself through what I'm about to do. And uh, have a look at verse 3 again, would you? After Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai took her Egyptian slave and gave to her husband to be his wife. They're exactly the same words as when Eve takes the fruit off the tree and gives to Adam. It's very striking, very deliberate. Those two verbs come together. The wife takes and gives. She's got a plot of her own. I mean, on top of all those little details, you don't need a PhD in biblical theology to realize, hang on a minute, what, ha- what just happened was that she told her maid to go and sleep with her husband. No, I don't think that's going to work out very well. I have, I have a bit of intuition that this isn't going to be very good for you. So there's that as well. Do you know what, though? In the history of taking shortcuts, in my experience, there is often a moment when I think, yes. I've definitely nailed this. Earlier on this week, I was cycling uh, through Tottenham Court Road, and there was a big roadworks in the way, and I thought, I wasn't expecting this. And I could have got off my bike and just walked around the fence. It would have taken me 20 seconds extra, but I thought, no. I bet I can take a shortcut, which would involve me staying on my bike. Off I go, around the block, turning right uh, through a small road, turning right again into a small alleyway, turning right again into a private courtyard. And at that point, when I met a dead end, I thought, No, this hasn't actually gone very well after all. I've I've just spiraled into a dead end. Not good at all. But there is often a moment where you think it might pay off. Sarai ends up with more problems than she started with. And she gets to the point at a dead end where she thinks, oh, now I've, I've made my husband go and sleep with my maid. My maid despises me. And this really hasn't paid off at all. 
see, she, she really gets to the point where she lashes out at the maid um, when in verse 6 she mistreats Hagar. She, she sort of ends up venting on her employee, even though she started off the whole plan in the first place. Do you see what she's doing here? Try to take a shortcut. Try to push in the same direction that she could see God's promises were going in. But she just thought, I think I can, mm, I think I can get here a little bit quicker. And she tries to use the means to justify the end. Let me just try and apply this in a number of directions to show that this does end up with more problems than you start with. Picture in our jobs. You have a businessman, a businesswoman, who's in lean times. They're offered a deal that will keep them afloat for a good while yet, perhaps get through the entire year, maybe even two years, and this would really be the antidote to the lean times. And there's just a little small catch, which is that the, the goods, the deal that I'm being offered has some you wears in it. Oh, seems like a good shortcut. This would really uh, help the family, help the business, even help the employees, but I, I know that this is no shortcut after all. Maybe the problems that are going to come back to bite me are the, the employees who know that their boss is crooked. Maybe it's one day when it comes out in the press that I've had some dodgy dealings and the whole business goes under altogether. Maybe it's the problem of a troubled conscience which always fears, actually, that that is going to come out one day. There's many fewer problems with a clean conscience than there are with a troubled one. There's one example from the job world. Um, I was talking to a student recently, and I think it comes up in academia as well. A student had graduated recently. They were converted at universities. They went from being a total non-Christian to a Christian. And he said, uh, I used to be able to take shortcuts with my essays. Yes, it was much easier to write essays when I wasn't a Christian. Because I could, just, I could just blag them, you know, I'd, I'd pick a point of view, I'd argue it as strenuously as I could, I'd pull in anything I could to support the argument, and quite often I'd get a good grade. And he said, now that I'm a Christian, I realize I sort of, it feels like I'm going the long way around. Because I really want my worldview to add up, so I'm really thinking about every essay, and I want to actually develop a worldview that makes sense in my subject. And there's no shortcuts for me anymore. Or uh, how I wish sometimes in ministry that there were shortcuts that I could take. Most weeks I find myself when I'm writing a sermon thinking, right, this is probably going to take me 15 hours talking, praying, studying, reading, meditating, trying to live the Christian life in a consistent way with which I'm going to preach on a Sunday. Oh, I wish there was a shortcut. I wish there was some way I could blag it in front of everybody and it would make sense to them. Thank you very much. I'm off for the rest of the week. And uh, I would, wouldn't have to somehow live it out as well. I've discovered that that only raises more problems for me and for you than it would if I went the long way around. Or maybe most holistically of all, uh, we've talked about job and students and, and ministry, but for, for Christian character... There is no shortcut, is there, for just living the Christian life. It would be lovely if I could just be zapped and become instantly holy straight away in sanctification terms, but the Lord doesn't seem to make it that way. I was talking to someone recently who said they wanted to grow in humility. And I thought, what a fantastic laudable aim. And they were obviously praying about it and wanting it. And then separately, they began recounting to me an incident about some really irritating person who was getting on their nerves. And then slowly it dawned on both of us as the conversation went on. Oh, hang on a minute. Yes. There is no shortcut to being humble, is there? There is no shortcut to character change. And the Lord does lead me through that. 
in what seems like the long way around. Of course, you get more problems for yourself if you try to shortcut your character change. Yeah, I want to be humble, but I don't want to have to deal with them, and we sort of block it out. And actually, what you end up becoming is more proud. Of course, there are some situations, and some of you might be thinking this, yeah, but sometimes I manage to take a really good shortcut, and it totally pays off. I think in that situation, you do have to wrestle with your conscience, and eventually with God. You have to wrestle with your conscience, because your conscience is something that can have ice form over it, isn't it? The more I take shortcuts morally, the more layers of ice build up on, upon my conscience and upon my heart. And eventually, I stop living for Christ altogether. Or, so that's your conscience. And eventually, of course, and ultimately, I do have to face God one day, who will ask me, why did you take that shortcut morally? And I don't want to be in a position there to have no explanation. There's Sarai. She takes a shortcut, gets more problems. Let's look at her husband, Abram. Secondly, Abram does nothing but gets the blame. Now, you might say, hang on a minute. This seems to be a story about the women. Sarai, Hagar, they go at it hammer and tongs here. But Abram's hardly present. Exactly. He's hardly there at all. Abram does nothing except a very significant deed. He does nothing. Have a look at verse 2, start of the second paragraph. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. Isn't that interesting? It's just, it's just a throwaway, and then it's back to the, the female protagonist. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. Literally, he heard the voice of Sarai. Do you know, that's exactly the phrase, Hebrew words, as um, in the Garden of Eden. When Adam hears the words his wife says. Actually, you only get that, that phrase in the entire Bible talking about a husband listening to his wife in Genesis 3 and Genesis 16. And the man heard the voice of his wife. So we're supposed to think, wait a minute, haven't we heard this before? Hagar is a bit like the fruit in Eden. You know, she's, she's taken and she's given to the husband. I mean, Adam even sounds a bit like Abram, doesn't it? It's like we're supposed to be, uh, I think I've heard this before. Adam, Abram is given the fruit and he listens to his wife. Ah, oh, hang on. And then it all turns out in verse 6, as you'll see. Abram washing his hands. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. So Sarai ill-treated Hagar. The man denies all knowledge and all responsibility. And of course, that's a peculiarly male sin in Genesis. It's the sin of omission. There are sins of commission where I actually do something uh, actively, and then there's a sin of omission where I fail to do something that I should have done. This is Abram's sin of omission. And it seems like a shortcut at the time. Do you see that? Oh, what a shortcut. If I, if I just do nothing, then it's less work for me. And Sarai is probably less work for you, and I'm not going to tax myself to think about it too much. This, this is a great shortcut, because I just... Uh, don't do anything particularly taxing. So you see, Abram in his own way is taking a shortcut as well. You kid yourself that you don't deserve any blame because you haven't done anything. But of course you get this very telling phrase in verse 5. Just have a look at verse 5. Sarai said to Abram, you're responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. You are. I put my slave in your arms and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. So may the Lord judge between you and me. 
No doubt there's a bit of vitriol coming from Sarah. She's angry anyway, but she makes the very important point that it's your fault, husband, that this happened because you didn't stop it. You didn't do anything. This, of course, makes the wider biblical point that a husband who does nothing while his whole household sins is not a blameless husband. I mean, you could apply that to a leader of any sort, can't you? A a business leader, a church leader, a leader of any sort who does nothing while their whole organization sins is not a blameless leader. And aren't we reminded this Remembrance Sunday that we do have people to thank who didn't do nothing, if I can use two negatives. On Remembrance Sunday, the whole point is we give thanks for people who stood up and did something when they needed to do something, and they didn't leave it to somebody else. I was reading a book recently called The Forgotten Voices of D-Day. And it's a fantastic book because it, um, it doesn't give you all the generals and the politicians and the Winston Churchills of the world talking about the Second World War, which are sort of the go-to people. It gives you the forgotten voices, the, the privates and the sappers and the medics and the people who were there on the 6th of June, 1944 in D-Day. And there's this fantastic passage from Private Dennis Bowen. He was in the East Yorkshire Regiment. And he was there. He was one of the first guys... Um, uh, in France on D-Day when when the Allied forces landed. He says, I didn't know enough about politics, of course. I was 18 years old. But I knew what the Germans were doing was wrong. And I didn't want it to happen in England, referring, I guess, to territorial, territorial expansion and the Holocaust. And I was very proud, I still am, of the fact that I was an instrument in some small way in preventing that happening here. You see what he's saying? I didn't, know, I didn't know all the answers. I didn't know everything that was going on. I wasn't Winston Churchill, but I'm very proud I did something. Now that's a military example for which we give thanks on Remembrance Sunday, but let me try and put that in spiritual terms. Husbands, and indeed leaders more widely, have a chance to do something to prevent sin from spreading or to prevent evil from coming into their household. I can read the scriptures with my family. I can pray in private and with other people, with my family. I can rebuke sin if needed, not in a sort of overboard, um, extravagant way which is gonna make people exasperated, but in a fair way. I can say sorry when I get things wrong so people aren't exasperated around me and they hold a grudge against me. I can do those things, I can do something. I won't get it perfect all the time. No leader does, but I can do something rather than nothing. Abram, of course, here does nothing, and he gets the blame. Okay, so there's, there's two of our characters, and let's look finally at um, Hagar. We've seen Sarai, we've seen Abram, and thirdly, we'll see that Hagar runs away, but gets sent back. Have a look at verse 7. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? And she said, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. Hagar isn't blameless in all this. Um, She's not just a hapless victim. Do you remember earlier on? She's she's despised. She's been um, aggressive and rude to her mistress. Uh, So she's not blameless. Uh, And what she does in verse uh, 4 is despise her mistress. That's the same word as curse in Genesis 12. I curse you. I curse you. And remember the promise, whoever curses Abram, I will curse, God says. 
So she despises it. She curses Abram and his wife. And she takes, do you see this? She takes what seems like a shortcut because she just runs away. And she thinks, there's all these problems facing me, and I think the best thing to do is I'll go that way, out into the desert, actually out towards Egypt on the road to Shur. I'll go that way, which seems like a shortcut. I can get away from all the problems. If you've got a difficult relationship in the family, in the office, is it not often easier to think, uh-oh, I think I'll run away. I think I'd rather not deal with this anymore. I think I'd rather not try and confront it and bring about any reconciliation, peacemaking. I think I'll run away. And she takes that option. And then, of course, you get this um, moment in the desert, this amazing moment with the angel. And let me just try and draw our attention to that. Verse 9. The angel of the Lord told her, go back. Go back. To which she and we might say, um, wait, I've just come away from a, uh, an ill-treating employee. I've been receiving abuse in my workplace. Why would I go back? And yet the angel is very clear. Go back to your mistress and submit to her. To which somebody might say, well, this is just more evidence that the Bible is pro-slavery, old-fashioned and outdated, telling her to go back into the cradle of abuse. And yet, and this is very important, the angel is not just telling her to go back into an abusive situation, like that would be entirely weird. The angel is telling her to go back to Abram's household. Go back to Abram's household, which is the source of all God's salvation blessings in the world, because you're much better off in his household with God's blessing than you are anywhere else. You see? Go back. Let me try and put it in terms of a metaphor. Um, have you ever stood under a waterfall? Stand under a waterfall. It, it can really hurt, can't it? You have all this, depending on the size of the waterfall, of course. If it's just a dribble, I suppose it's just annoying. But um, if you stand under quite a big waterfall, then everything's pounding on your head. Ow, ow, the water's falling really hard on me. This is a great torrent coming down on my head. Ouch. And it's somewhat like the angel is saying to uh, Hagar here, go back, stand under the waterfall of God's blessing. Because Abram is the, the small gap. The, the, the gap through which I'm going to force all my salvation blessing for the entire world. So you are better off in his house un, household under the waterfall of his blessing, even though it's with ordinary human beings who muck things up, than you are anywhere else in the world. Go back, stand under the waterfall. Because that's how salvation is going to come into the world. This guy. Go back. There are some very special signs in this passage of uh, the, the way God treats Hagar as well. It's not just a sort of callous, go on, off you go, back under the waterfall. Uh, there's a couple of details that really stand out. Firstly, Hagar is the only woman in the whole of the ancient Near Eastern literature who gets called by name by any god. Isn't that striking? So in verse 8, when the angel says, Hagar, slave of Sarai, in other words, I know exactly who you are. I know and I care for you, and I've come out here in the desert to meet you. Even though the rest of ancient culture would totally despise you and reject you because you're a woman and a slave, and you've run away and been disobedient, I know, I know your name. That's a very special detail. And she's also the only woman, in fact the only character in the entire Bible, who gives a name to God. Normally you find out the names from God because he tells you, but she gives a name to God. You see, at the end of the passage, she says, you are the God who sees me. 
So she gets this very special privilege of being able to say, this is the way God's interacted with me. This is the name that I give to him. And no one else in the entire Bible does that. The Lord's very tender to a slave here, very tender to a foreigner. As he says to her, I know who you are. I'm your God. Go back. And I'll bless you through this guy. This is ultimately a picture of Jesus, as Jesus is the son of Abram, through whom God, the, the narrow gap through whom God forces all his salvation blessings for the entire world. Jesus is the waterfall, if you like, through whom all the blessings of, the, to the, uh, of salvation come to the entire world. It's fantastic. You do, in fact, need a different category for Jesus, because I know she is sent back into an ordinary human household with ordinary human problems. A bit of a difficult marriage and employment. But you and I are sent towards Jesus, the waterfall of God's blessing, who is perfect. So when you and I are sent to stand under the waterfall to receive Jesus' blessings, it is fantastic because you get a perfect savior who is perfect. He doesn't just give me rules and morals and guilt, but he gives me salvation. I think actually this can play with our heads a little bit because I don't know if you're the same as me, when I was not a Christian, if someone had told me to go to Jesus because that would be better for you, I would have thought, no, no, because he's just going to give me more guilt, he's going to give me more sermons, and he's going to give me more rules to deal with. But that's why you need a different category for Jesus, because when you actually run to him, you realize oh, you are entirely tender. That's why the Bible calls you both the lion and the lamb, because you're able to be stern and fierce and holy and yet gracious to servant girls in the wilderness. That's why you're able to be utterly compassionate with people, to sinners, and yet so uncompromising on sin. That's why you discover at the high point of the Bible when Jesus Christ is raised from the dead on Easter Sunday, who does he talk to first? Some scared women outside the city. In an echo of Hagar in the wilderness. And he's entirely compassionate and tender with them while telling them the truth about his resurrection. If you are here this morning and you're running from Jesus, running in the other direction, can I say it's very counterintuitive, it's very strange, I know, but you need to run straight to him. The night I became a Christian, the night I, I gave it all to Christ uh, 15 years ago, the strangest thing happened to me. Um, the preacher said, you've been going to church all your life? He was talking to the whole congregation. He said, there's someone here who's been going to church all their life and they've never actually given it over to Jesus. And I was, it was like I was struck by a thunderbolt and I thought, how on earth does he know I'm here? And I'm just sitting at the back here, just sitting at the back trying to mind my own business and he knows I'm here. You've got to give your life to Jesus. And I remember walking down the aisle to pray with him at the end and it was like my legs were doing something that I didn't want them to do. It was the strangest thing. It was like I was walking towards Jesus and yet it was entirely counterintuitive. <laughs> I was having this fierce debate in my head. Don't do it! What are you doing? Don't walk towards Jesus. Don't go and pray with that man. And yet, with more of my being, I knew it was exactly the right thing to do. Can I say to you today, if you're running from Jesus, run towards him, not away. No more shortcuts. Let's pray. Almighty God, 
who meets ordinary people in ordinary situations, ordinary household, ordinary marriages, ordinary sins, who meets castaways and runaways in the desert. We pray to you today. We have courage to pray to you today because you're the God who sees us. You're the God who's bringing blessings to the entire world through Abram and indeed through Jesus Christ. And we come to you today in hope. Even if it's a strange thing for us to pray this morning, Father, I pray that uh, you'd give us the courage to do so. Give us the courage to come to Jesus and not run away from him. And we pray, Father, you would indeed give us the courage not to take shortcuts in our life, but to trust that you will bring about your promises in your perfect timing. I pray for any of us who need particular strength to believe that now as we wait and wait and wait. I pray you give us the courage by faith to run to Jesus as we wait. And it's in his great name that we pray. Amen.